again to our podcast friends. You're listening to Faith and Reason 360. Support for Faith and Reason 360 comes from the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation and the Joe B. and Louise P. Cook Foundation, promoting critical thinking about faith and life. I'm Devo Dykes. And I'm Ann Phelps. And joining us today is Naran Khan, Program Officer at the Ford Foundation, where she is responsible for the strategy and management of the grant-making portfolios of the Foundation's president. She arrived in this position through an educational and professional journey where she earned a BA from Rice University, an MPhil from Oxford where she was a Rhodes Scholar, and a JD from Yale Law School. She went on to a career as a corporate lawyer at one of the most lucrative, competitive, and prestigious law firms in the world, a position she left to pursue a career where she could clearly have a positive impact on the lives of individuals and community. After working as a chief of staff to the founder of Teach for America, she landed at the Ford Foundation and continues to serve on the board of the Girl Scouts of the United States of America, the American Association of Rhodes Scholars, Libraries Without Borders, contributes as a researcher for Jezebel, has appeared under, on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list in 2014, and was recently profiled in Elle magazine. Naran, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy to be here. Um, I'm totally embarrassed by the introduction, but so so kind of you. <laughs> well, I'm intimidated by the introduction. <laughs> the internet gives us oh all my kinds gosh, of secrets. Oh my gosh, just a bunch of words. Well, Naran, we, we were really taken with the story, you know, here at, at Faith and Reason, we're really committed to finding our vocation, and, and we define vocation often in terms um, that the theological, the theologian Frederick Buechner describes as finding where your deep passion and the world's deep hunger meet. And your story has always struck me since I've known it um, as one that really embodies that, finding a way to use the gifts that you have, and, and you clearly have many, um, mm-hmm. to, to make the world a better place when there are so many careers that could make you a lot of money and could make the world actually a worse place that might pay you better. Um, it's been really, really inspiring to me to hear your story. And so I just want to hear a little bit about that, how you've landed at the Ford Foundation and the work you're doing um, and, and what, what led you there. Sure. Well, um, again, thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be able to talk about the work I do in my journey, um, but especially to be in a space where I can talk about my faith, which has kind of mm-hmm. been a you know sustaining and guiding force in my life. And I would say that I don't always have that opportunity, and so I especially appreciate uh, appreciate that chance. Excellent. Um, so. <laughs> I'll say, uh, I think I always knew I would uh, have some sort of career eventually in social justice or in the nonprofit world. And uh, for a variety of reasons, I ended up in a job in corporate law right after law school, which is not an unusual path. I think plenty of people go to law school, but then their financial and other kinds of reasons, um, you know, folks end up going to law firms. What's actually quite ironic is that it's much easier to get a job at a law firm than it is in um, as a public interest lawyer. They're just much more competitive and fewer jobs. And Mm -hmm. the pipeline is actually much more direct. Mm -hmm. And so you'll find lots of people that I think went to law school for one reason and then came out the other. Absolutely. uh, And the other way. Um, So, you know, I was practicing law for a couple of years. And I would say, 
Uh, I spent all my volunteer, uh, all my vacation time my first year uh, as a corporate lawyer working on this really big Girl Scout project trying to plan the 100th anniversary with a bunch of high school girls Mm. in Chicago. And I was living in New York and I was traveling to Chicago and I was like, you know, taking weekends and whatever vacation I could uh, to work with them. And I think at the end of the year, I, I, I really decided like this, uh, this can't wait that if this is this important to me that I'm using the very little free time I have to work on it, that um, I think there's some more urgency around the transition. And then I just started looking. I started, I mean, it's really hard um, to know where to begin, especially if you're a generalist. I think a lot of people who, you know, care about issues, care about social justice, care about other people, um, you know, may be open to a lot of different things. And I, I found myself in that position. I was Googling chief of staff, New York nonprofit, nonprofit Aww. special assistant. I mean, I was just like, <laughs> it was like very fairly unsophisticated. Absolutely. Um, I ended up at Teach for All and then, um, and then, you know, pretty quickly transitioned to the Ford Foundation where I now work, uh, which is a total dream job for me. And after two jobs, which I, you know, I wasn't particularly motivated by, uh, this is, this is a total dream for me. And, I wouldn't, I, I mean, I always pinch myself. It's been two years and I, I still kind of can't believe it. Well, it's so wonderful to hear that. I mean, I just think about, you know, you say it was at the end of that first year and, and um, ironically we had brunch together on January 1st of that, that year. So right after <laughs> you, and I just remember you I um, know. and your personality and you are just not suited to the corporate law world. And so you said something when you're talking about your time with the Girl Scout uh, Foundation and, and planning that hundredth anniversary in the very little time you had off. Um, so there are some clear benefits to working in these big, prestigious, lucrative spaces. Um, but there were also some clear drawbacks that weren't a good fit for your personality. I'm guessing the timing might have been one of them, um, the amount of time you were expected to spend at work. What were some of the things you struggled with in that environment? Uh, well, let me just say, I love my colleagues. I learned a lot. I worked really hard. And um, I think there's something to be said for like going to too much school for too long and then (laughs) finally being in a place where you're like a working person and like seeing what you're capable of when you're stretched to the limit. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of things I really draw inspiration from, just the level of excellence that's demanded. I mean, my colleagues are so excellent. I always Mm -hmm. felt like I learned a lot from that. So I, I'm sorry to kind of dodge your question, but I oh I, I want to make sure this isn't a complaint. Oh, no, go right ahead. No, no, go right ahead. No, I mean, and that's well, the question, right? There are some complaint fest all the time for myself. <laughs> like I actually have to stop myself at some point and be like, no, there were good things. Um, <laughs> but I I struggled with a lot during that job. Uh, true, there was time constraints. I think I didn't always feel like I was with my tribe of people mm-hmm. who cared about the same kind of social justice things I cared about. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of people who care a lot about, you know, doing charitable things, but there's kind of a, kind of a, kind of a deeper connection to that work. Mm-hmm. I think, um, uh, uh, this is, this is around the time of like Occupy Wall Street at the beginnings of the, you know, movement for black lives. And, there's, you know, so much of the headlines made me feel like we were in a, a moment of social change. And I felt very estranged from that. Hmm. And so those are some of the ways in which I, you know, I really struggled. And uh, it, it was difficult to have regular commitment to social justice 
mm-hmm. issues, uh, you know, other than the Girl Scout project, it was pretty hard. And so I had to, I had to do the work late, you know, late at night, early in the morning. Mm-hmm. And, and very late at night. Yeah. I mean, the hours that y'all keep at those law firms, it, it's just <laughs> yeah. unthinkable. Even to, you know, those of us who say, oh, I work a lot. I work 60 hours a week. 60 hours would have been a nothing. Yeah, exactly. And before we go too far into the justice stuff and you talk about how happy you are right now, uh-huh. let's go back a little bit because I want our listeners to understand what you were doing, so you were working for this very um, impressionable law firm, super high-pressure job, uh, I'm going to assume, and a, a, a fairly enormous salary with lots <laughs> of perks. Um, talk about those perks. And, yeah, what are the things yeah. that keep people in jobs like that despite the long hours and, and some of those challenges? Well, law school will bankrupt you. I mean, it is so <laughs> incredibly is expensive. And and certainly for people who carry debt from um, from undergrad and then from law school, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's plenty of reasons. It takes it takes many years for people to pay off those debts. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. You know, what you do day to day, at least what I did day to day was work on corporate governance. So when one company wants to take over another company hostily, kind of against their will, they're you know, there are kind of governing documents of the entity that, you know, it's like being taken over uh, that can help or hurt that endeavor of like the, the takeover. So takeover defense. And then, you know, mergers and acquisitions, uh, you know, um, private investors wanting to, you know, buy out a company like leveraged buyout. So, so, you know, in the structure of a, you know, a team, like we were a pretty lean law firm. And so, you know, you work on, making sure you get signature pages to helping um, negotiate uh, the terms of the deal and then translate those negotiated terms into a deal document Uh or, um, you know, analyzing a bunch of different bids for a company. I mean, there's any number of things that the lawyers on a deal work on. Uh And so that is one element of it. You kind of have to be very steeped in Delaware law because a lot of the companies are are based in Delaware. Uh But the perks, the perks are endless. I mean, it's like, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner to keep you there. Um, Uh You know, great compensation. Um, You know, everything you could, you know, like everything from proofreading and editing uh, Uh for your work to, um, you know, social things that are arranged for colleagues to get to know each other. And, um, you know, I'm sure there are other things that that are escaping me, but it's, (laughs) It's very much structured to be supportive of uh, enabling you to dedicate the time, the very, the, the, as much time as possible to billing. Well, and I might um, be embellishing a little bit, or I might misunderstand. But do they do, does a job like that go to the extremes uh, because of all of your billable hours? I mean, like, do you do your own laundry? Do you drive back and forth to the work? Do you commute? <laughs> How does that work? Yeah, sure. Uh, I don't know if other firms, um, you know, have laundry done for you. But I mean, I, uh, <laughs> I certainly didn't have time to drop off or pick up laundry. So I definitely <laughs> use the service, which is pretty common in New York. Uh-huh. We had, uh, you know, car service uh, to and from work if you left before, uh, if, if you left your house early enough and came back late enough, um, which was pretty standard, like every day. And, uh, and the meal thing is actually very helpful because then you didn't have to waste time mm-hmm. going, leaving the office to get coffee or leaving the office to pick up the meals. Like someone would actually 
delivered to your floor, mm-hmm. plate it, and bring it to your desk, in all honesty. <laughs> and it's such a different mentality, um, a job that works on the billable hour. So for a lot of our listeners who work in a field more like my background, which is more humanities and arts-driven, um, the billable hour is so foreign to us. And it's this this uh, structure that, that makes you uh, account for every moment that you spend in your office so that you can say to your clients, I spent this time on this project for you. Otherwise, they shouldn't have to pay you, right, if you're spending your time doing something else. And so from the outside, sometimes those perks can look just absolutely extravagant uh, that you get meals and they bring them in and they're great food and you don't have to think about it. And that looks so extravagant to an outsider. But we forget that the the payoff piece is that there's also sort of a, a you're not allowed to leave your desk because it costs the law firm money for you to leave your desk. And so there's mm-hmm. there's this that's right. That's right. Different law firms have different. Yeah. Different law firms have different structures for that. You know, like, you know, I, I've heard of law firms. I My firm certainly wasn't like that where. You know, time is built in six minute increments. So if you go to the bathroom, you miss a six minute increment. Like that is definitely a reality for folks. Wow. Um, but one thing I'll just say, you're absolutely right. A lot of the um, what you know, what you put in quotes as perks are really just enabling you to work more. All the time. And I, I don't think I, I would say I worked with people who were so lovely and they weren't. <laughs> re- I really never felt like they were like, you know, most people were very like self-indulgent. They were right. just. It was kind of like uh, transactional in a meta sense, in the, you know, in that it enabled you to uh, dedicate your energies to the places where where it would not just bring more value to the firm, but like, you know, if you really liked what you did, it enabled you to focus all of your time on that. I often right. think I wish I could have such a super supported environment in, <laughs> in you know, like in the social justice spaces oh, and but it would just like never happen. It would make zero sense financially, but it's kind of, <laughs> it just enable, if you're into the work, mm. you can really just do the work and be just fine. I just wish I didn't have to think about what to make for dinner most nights. So, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so real. The struggle was real when I got out of it. Yes. Sure. Uh, well, that is one of the questions. How do I feed myself in Midtown? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, that is one of the questions. This, this shift, this decision, you say that you're, your faith played a role in it, and obviously your educational background and your your commitments to social justice did. What what? How do you account for this shift that so many people struggle to make? As you said, law school can bankrupt you, and a lot of people say, you know, I'll become a corporate lawyer for three years and pay back this wonderful education, and then I'll go do something. But they they don't. It's so hard to walk away, and so rare to hear someone walk away. How did that shift happen? What what empowered you and motivated you to do that? And keep in mind this, uh, Noreen, there are probably listeners that are c- climbing that corporate ladder mm-hmm. and are probably not very happy. Well, I'm sure m- many are, but there are some that are not. And so uh, in responding to, to Anne's question, um, you know, maybe uh, you could offer some insight into how this has been beneficial to you and it could be something encouraging or or uh, empowering for someone who is looking to move into something that uh, f- is more passionate something that they really enjoy much more and are gratified by by doing yeah I mean they're definitely golden handcuffs in the sense that if this is like your first job out of law school you get used to a certain standard of of uh, you know lifestyle in terms of apartment or uh, just other kinds of expenditures, like having to scale back, I think is really difficult for people, especially if you're starting a family and you're, I mean, there's just, 
they're so, you know, life can be really expensive anywhere, um, but, you know, in, including New York City. And I just think that, you know, it's, it's very easy, uh, you know, to get, uh, you know, to, to have ongoing financial commitments, which render it very difficult, to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to, to move on. I would, I would also, I just, I feel like there's one angle on this that I feel really strongly about, which is, you know, I'm so happy and proud that I made, um, I made a move that made sense for me. But when I look at the gendered, um, mm. you know, levels of partnership, I mean, just mm. so many more um, partners who are men than partners who are women or, you know, mm. gender nonconforming. I, you know, I do think it's important for people to stay in the profession if they really care about it and if they're really right. moved by it because we need, we need the all spaces, whether they're corporate or otherwise, to have more representation. So I'm proud I moved on. I was just never, I was never going to be the person who's going to be a partner there. <laughs> yeah. um, so it wasn't a good fit for me. Um, but, but that's a uh, great point. That's a I, great I, point. Thanks for making that, Noreen. Yeah. I mean, the, the gender yeah, issue is very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, it's just like, like every, we need, we need to be represented and have power at all levels. Like mm-hmm. we meaning women, people of color, you know, every, everyone that's traditionally underrepresented or, or marginalized by structures, mm-hmm. like it's not all on them, but if you're into it, stick around. Right. Um, so, so what enabled me to walk away? Um, I think I always wanted a career in social justice in some way. So it wasn't a really foreign idea to me that I was navigating as like a stranger. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a lot of people in my life who were doing that work Mm -hmm. and just hearing about what they do day to day, having their support and encouragement Mm -hmm. um, really made it real for me. And, you know, again, was very encouraging. Mm I think also just like not getting caught up in um, in spending all the money I was, you know, that that I was able to save up, like just deciding that like I didn't need I didn't need all um, I didn't need all material things at all times immediately was very helpful too. Well, so, one other thing know, that like, you, you it might just could felt re- very natural. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that um, I want to to mention that that uh, I'm assuming had an influence is I know that while you were at Oxford, you studied um, uh, migration studies and the Mm -hmm. economics of modern contemporary immigration. So um, what are your thoughts and concerns uh, about the country's new administration's position on immigration? And while you're working in these Mm. issues of social justice, this is is definitely uh, an issue of injustice that's going on right now. Absolutely. I mean... Uh, you know, as I said before, there are so many social movements that have been ignited in the, you know, in the last couple of years. And I, I, I felt disconnected from them in my day-to-day work. Um, but certainly as I've moved into, you know, being a, a funder at a foundation that focuses on fighting inequality in all of its manifestations around the world, there is no question that, you know, uh, you know, everything from immigration policies to, assault on, um, you know, women's rights to, I mean, the list is endless. And so I do feel like the the work that we do is more relevant than ever in this landscape. Mm -hmm. I I mean, it existed before, uh, you know, the the, the current political context, it'll continue on. These are social structures. They may have certain kinds of currency now and 
you know, more policy viability right now. But, you know, this fight is long. And so I feel uh, I feel so fortunate to be able to be a part of these conversations in my day to day work for sure. And certainly as a Muslim American woman, I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm so like we're, we're intersectional beings and right. I'm finding that so many parts of who I am, I'm a, I'm a Midwesterner. Mm-hmm. I'm, um, you know, I, I not only am I from, um, you, you know, from Pakistan, I, you know, my father's from the tribal areas, which are like marginalized within Pakistan. You know, I, I have um, I have friends and relatives all over the world. Mm-hmm. I, there's just so many layers to this. So mm-hmm. I really feel like I feel very close to it personally with my identity. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's necessary or important. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think you have to be personally connected to something to to feel empathy and to feel motivated. And certainly I've, um, you know, I've been working with, um, you know, activists who fight for the rights of people with disabilities over the last a uh, year or so, and I learned so much from them, and that, mm-hmm. that that has kind of reinforced my idea that you may be able to feel and experience things personally, but you don't need to be able uh, to be able to you know be a, um, a sincere uh, ally. Yeah. I, well, you bring you... up being a, a Muslim American woman, and and how that has um, I hear in your comments about your actually your reluctance to leave the law firm. Uh, that that influenced that, right? That you wanted to make sure that there was representation um, that was more diverse than what currently exists. And that was one of the reasons for potentially staying. But what, what role do you think your religious background um, and your own, your own faith and, and what that looks like has played in the choices you've made? Well, um, you know, I'm, I'm Muslim. I'm also part of the Shia community. Mm-hmm. And one of you know, one of the things that you get reminded of as a kid through stories, through our history, through, uh, you know, we're a kind of sectarian minority within a religious minority, um, is stories about the notion of justice and, uh, you know, justice on earth, justice in the long term for your soul. And so, so much of how I think about the world and um, like what, you know, what people deserve uh, the dignity that they're entitled to stems from my, uh, you know, the, the my faith tradition and from the stories that I, I was I was told as a child and that got more and more sophisticated and and um, and deeper, uh, you know, as I became an adult. So I think back to those. I mean, I think about those stories every day when I'm praying, mm-hmm. and then I think about them. Uh, you know, during certain times of the year when we have more extended observances. But Mm -hmm. the underlying notion of justice is one that gets raised explicitly and named every single time. Hmm. And I bet you work with Muslim women, Noreen. And I'm wondering, um, how do they respond to what they're facing? I mean, do they are they afraid um, to to move about, especially in, in the New York area where uh, there have been a number of incidences. Um, do you work with these women? How do they respond? Um, h- how do they how do they deal with what's going on uh, with the administration's position on immigration and Muslims? I mean, it is such a scary time. Mm-hmm. It is unbelievably scary. And if you're identifiably other, um, mm-hmm. so I'm talking about Muslim women who wear hijab. Uh, sick men who wear turbans, you know, mm-hmm. other other communities that are just, you know, visibly, uh, you know, d- different. It's not just rhetoric. It's not just like light bullying and teasing. They're they're I mean, 
people are killed. People are harassed. And I, I, um, you know, injured physically, uh, you know, tortured emotionally, fired from their jobs. Like, this is so real. And I think that people forget because the rhetoric itself is scary enough. And you're like, oh, my gosh, what a bad environment. But, like, it is um, – it's just – just ridiculously terrifying Mm -hmm. and I always think to myself like if you're an adult you've seen a lot you've been through a lot like you you um have the mechanisms the support systems the frameworks to understand the world and to get support and resources where you need them you're not always safe but Mm -hmm. um it's possible for you to have what you need to be supported. I think about being a young person, like a very young person socialized into this environment uh, for whom this is normal or, uh, and and I think about just like the elevated levels of awareness and scrutiny and um, sensitivity and just everything else that comes with, (laughs) I mean, it's already hard to be a a young person Mm -hmm. and to add this layer on, is just Mm. like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that it's not just like, you know, Muslim kids. It's like, you know, young queer kids or, right. you know, um, you know, <laughs> Latino immigrants or, right. you know, folks of other ethnicities. I mean, it's everyone. And that's, I mean, it just terrifies me. Right. I hate it. Right. It's, it really is a, a really charged moment that we live in. And one of the things that you and I have, in common um, is that we are both married to political theorists and, um, and that's kind of how we know each other. Um, and, uh, and so I'm curious, I'm sure like me, you at home are often having conversations about how um, the political landscape shapes the choices we make and the way we move in the world. Um, the work that you're doing at the Ford Foundation, um, how, how do you see it in conversation with the shifting political and sociological landscape that we are watching unfold around us that is so fear-based intentionally and is scaring people, um, particularly people who are underrepresented in our, our, our sort of major culture. Um, what is the relationship there? Um, so I, I guess I'll, I'll answer your question by, by saying this. Um, we, as a foundation, started explicitly uh, describing our the work of uh, our collective work as fighting inequality, mm-hmm. you know, well over two years ago. Mm-hmm. We, we undertook a process where we, um, you know, thought about the problems of the world and what, what we needed to do and how we would confront the biggest problems of our time. Mm-hmm. We landed on focusing on inequality. And I think, um, I think the fact that that's still our focus regardless of what happens in an election or in a particular moment is telling in the sense that inequality is entrenched. Inequality is deep, mm-hmm. anti-Muslim bias and bigotry, anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. racism, xenophobia, ableism all existed before and they may be given new light now, but it's the same stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you're fighting at the systems change level at the policymaking level, like you're, you're dealing with the same stuff. So I think in the current political landscape, our work became more urgent. It became more necessary. It became, um, the, the, you know, the inequality that we're fighting may be exacerbated 
but it's still an equality that we're fighting. And right. so that's how I think about it. I, I think that it's one of those things where you're like, I on the prize. Mm-hmm. We're already working on this and we picked these issues because they are the, they are the issues of our time. And so um, I, that so resonated for me. Like we didn't up and change all of our programs or anything. Like we just deepened our commitment. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to hear you say that because I really feel um, that resonates with my experience as well that, we live in a really charged moment, as you reference, and, and the, the fear is real and legitimate. There are scary choices being made and travel bans keeping people out of countries and policies that are targeting our young people who came here without their own knowledge. I mean, it's, it is a scary time for a lot of people. That said, like you say, this has always been true. It has this. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to go to the silver lining too quickly in this charged moment that we live in, but but there is... Uh, something good about shedding light on the fact that these things existed before and now we are more capable and more called to talk about them than ever before. So hopefully this can be a moment that leads us into a, a more just society because we're actually able to see the, the inequality more starkly. I think so too. Like all the subtle stuff is yeah. has mm-hmm. manifested and Hopefully everyone who denied that it existed mm-hmm. can see with clear eyes what what we're fighting, mm-hmm. what we're what, like the just society that we're fighting for. Mm-hmm. Well, and I want to go back to this, Noreen. Um, you you talked a little bit about uh, the disability rights, um, and they're they're central to social justice issues. And so I know the Ford Foundation and you in particular are working in this area to um, to bring about uh, not only awareness, but to try to help uh, others and to integrate these people uh, more profoundly into an accepting culture. Um, tell us uh, tell us what the Four Foundation and what y'all are doing with that particular program. You know, I, I, what comes to mind immediately for me is that we have seen uh, in the past year, year and a half um, from um, our administration, that, um, uh, you know, mocking and making fun of people with disability um, has uh, been accepted by some. And so, which of course is appalling. So tell me about the Ford Foundation. What are you doing with this disability um, uh, rights, uh, the program? Talk about that program. Sure, absolutely. So um, our work in disability rights was prompted by um, feedback uh, after we announced our, you know, very publicly to a great fanfare, announced our focus on inequality. And we named race and gender and other intersections of identity as, uh, you know, as constituencies and groups of people we, you know, were thinking about intentionally. And we never said anything about people with disabilities or ableism. And we started to hear from activists and I'll say the journey we've been on since we started to hear from those activists has been uh, the most transformational of my life personally mm. uh, wow. and, and professionally and has fundamentally changed uh, how, you know, how we do our work at the Ford foundation. So we, we, um, and it was a, a real moment of reckoning when you think you're like an enlightened progressive mm. uh, person or organization um, you know, it's, it's humbling to think about what power and privilege you have and to mm-hmm. be confronted by the realities of the limits of, uh, uh, of what you're doing. And it became so clear that 
doing a disability rights program or thinking about people with disabilities separately didn't make sense for us at this time, that everyone at the foundation needed to learn more about people with disabilities and look at the um, uh, look at ourselves, our hiring, our practices, our, our building an event, who's on panels, who's in the room when we convene people, who our grantees are, you know, a, a, a lot of fundamental operational things. And then who we fund and the intersections of our programmatic work and, um, you know, people with disabilities. Like there, there are people with disabilities all over the world um, who operate in and are, are served by organizations that we support. So what are, what are we doing um, about that in a meaningful way? And so we just decided, like, whether we work on creativity and free expression, which includes arts and culture, mm-hmm. or... Um, uh, uh, you know, our economic justice issues when we're thinking about fair wages for people mm-hmm. or um, development and development of cities, uh, we need to be thinking about accessibility of those cities. Oh, we need yeah. to be thinking about um, arts and culture and the social justice storytelling uh, that includes, uh, is inclusive of people with disabilities mm-hmm. or, um, you know, the wages that people with disabilities who work are entitled to. And the social safety net. I mean, there's still there's layers to this, and and we just decided all areas of the foundation need to beef up on this. Well, it's so, so that's really ins- the journey we've been on. I just love that because it's so inspiring. You know, so many, whether it's a foundation or an individual, might be met. You know, you say those activists reach out to you and said, you know, we aren't a part of your platform right now, and that's silencing to us and marginalizing to us. And how is that representative of inequality? And I just love that the Ford Foundation had this posture of humility that they said you're right instead mm-hmm. of defending. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! The, the fact that that was included. I don't know how you hear from them and not <laughs> react that way. I know. I mean, and, yeah. and look, we have problems with people who are you know we need we need to hire more people with disabilities to be mm-hmm. in leadership roles in these spaces. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, one of the you know key mottos of the movement is nothing about us without us, and mm-hmm. so we've you know we've taken on a senior fellow. We have a consultant. Oh, we, you know, we're working mm-hmm. with. Um, you know, folks who identify as people with yeah. disabilities and it is, there are so many people who have been doing this work for so long. I'm Ugh. totally honored and humbled to work with them and learn from them. Well, and that's such a, a valuable process. You know, we do, especially in this talk of privilege, you know, whether it be here in, in Jackson, Mississippi, Debo and I both live here, but we are white and that is the minority here. We are extremely privileged in our city. Mm-hmm. Um, racially or with with christianity you know you hear a lot of christians trying to conjure up this idea that there's some kind of war on christians right now which is just oh, absolute yeah. absurdity yeah. Crazy. and and rather than defending oneself and saying we aren't privileged i love the ford foundation's example of saying you're right we we missed something we mm-hmm. didn't see it and rather than trying to sort of race to to prove that they're the most sensitive um and say well we we've been left out in this way I, I just love that humility, and I think we could all learn from that. Um, that that I think uh, it takes a leader. I mean, my my, my boss, Aaron Walker, is a transformational leader, yeah. and uh, you know, it's part of who he is and how he thinks about the world. I've learned just in two years, I've learned so much from his leadership mm-hmm. style. But it's very authentic and reflective and honest, and you know, um, I, I mean, I'm like, I want to, I will always want to be better. There will always mm-hmm. be things that we're not. We're not there yet on. And once you're there, you don't always just stay there. You have to kind of keep at it and get better. And so mm-hmm. um, I hope to take that with me wherever else I go and whatever else I do. You know, Noreen, as simple as this idea might sound, um, 
I was watching one of my favorite programs. I'm going to plug it, NCIS. I just love <laughs> NCIS. Uh, probably one of the only television programs that I record and watch. Um, but I, I was stunned the other night um, watching NCIS. This had never crossed my mind at all. But uh, um, at the end of the program... Um, oh goodness! Now I'm forgetting the the uh, performer's uh, name, but stage name. But nevertheless, he gave money um, to one of his colleagues. He accidentally gave a, a lot more. I think he put a he forgot to put the decimal point, uh, and so it ended up charging his credit card uh, without the decimal point. But nevertheless, but um, he didn't withdraw his pledge. But you know what they did with the money? Uh, and the show concluded, it ended with them standing. They had built a playground for disabled children. I have never seen this before, never thought of this before. A playground is a playground. Mm. I thought, well, everybody can come to mm. a playground. They specifically designed and built a playground for disabled children. Well, yeah, and our society is so is so ableist in such such ways that are so difficult to see, and and that's really how I think privilege works, right? It it works that we can, we're kind of blind, right? It we puts blind, blinders. We on blind us. ourselves to it exactly, and I think that that's what is is so valuable about this work and this posture of humility and and the way that we can use that privilege toward justice, but only if we see it. And that's what I, I guess it, it brings me back to what we were talking about earlier and how, um, you know, someone with your educational background um, has certain privileges, right? And you had the ability to stay at that law firm for the rest of your life and become partner. And in fact, even be part of social justice movement in doing so as someone who would become representative of different populations that aren't typically represented in, in the partnership or whatever it might be. Um, but I'm really curious about this idea of how we use our privilege toward justice. Um, do you, when you think about the education you've had and the access you've had to people in, uh, in power and to, um, giant coffers of money or whatever, whatever the case may be, um, what specifically do you feel called to? What, what do you think your gifts are, your, your, your education has led you to do and, and, and her faith. And I mean, how has your faith guided how, you? How can we use those things toward justice wherever we sit? It's such a great question. I'm, I'm thinking about it a little bit because it's so rich and ripe for mm. um, for reflection. I mean, I don't I don't know why I answer this question as opposed to anyone else, but <laughs> um, I, I mean. <sighs> I guess I always just think like, what's the point of accumulating um, wealth or rewards or awards or um, social capital or assets, tangible and intangible, if you can't spend them um, in uh, when needed. Mm -hmm. And so like, I think that's, that's how I think about what, what I've been what I've been given in my life. And I, I, I would say, you know, my dad grew up incredibly poor in the tribal areas of Pakistan, you know, uh, you know, from a community where, you know, most people don't leave. And so, um, 
it's such a guiding principle in his life and my in my uh, in my both my parents' lives in mm. you know our extended communities and faith communities that like like I think that's the point. I think the point is to mm-hmm. do everything you can to help um, you know and other people suffering and and help bring more dignity to to everyone's lives. Mm-hmm. So. I, and I, I can't even remember the question you asked me. It's like, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm okay. it's so fine. hard. Well, yeah. it was a wonderful response. And, it, you know, most of our listeners are invested in in faith and religion in, in some capacity. And, um, you know, you reference this a number of times, the your your Muslim background and how as you, you pray each day and has you, how as you hear these stories, especially in, in different high holy days and celebrations, um, that there are stories that motivate you, um, and this might be putting you on the spot, so take a pause to to think through it if you need to, but um, what most of our listeners, because we are in the United States and, and most of us are Christians, just demographically, um, don't know those stories. What is a story in particular, either a story from your childhood of your that your parents might tell given their backgrounds, or a story from um, your sacred texts. What what are might be one of those stories that really encapsulates for you um, how you feel called to move in the world? Well, so as a Shia Muslim, one of the one of the times during the year that we commemorate and ritualize our commemoration for is um, something called the tragedy at Karbala. Uh-huh. Which in which the the grandson of our uh, prophet uh, Muhammad peace be upon him, uh, his name was Hussein. He and his family members and uh, supporters uh, were pretty brutally massacred uh-huh. when they were protesting the uh, the leader of the Muslim world at the time, um, who was perpetuating just unbelievable injustice. I mean, just not just not following faith traditions, but um, you know, doing things that were incredibly um, destructive and harmful and, um, uh, uh, you know, everything from persecuting minorities mm-hmm. to, um, uh, uh, like, like hurting the poor. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the list, the, the list of the injustices that he perpetuated were are just like countless. Mm-hmm. So, so we do this thing every year where we, um, over the course of 10 days, and because it's the lunar calendar, it moves around every year. Mm-hmm. This year it was in, you know, October. Uh, name and recount the injustices of the time. Mm-hmm. And then in a really impassioned way, uh, commemorate the, the, the steps that were taken mm-hmm. by the grandson of the prophet to stand up to him. Mm-hmm. And you know, it was it, it, there. There's so much beauty to it in the ritualized practice of telling the same story every year for ten days, mm-hmm. and then actually extending the morning for like dozens of days after that. In all honesty, like three months after that. But like we we revisit that story every year, and um, a huge part of that is after after the end of the massacre, the women became the leaders, and mm. they. Uh, vocalized what uh, in terms of remembrance like what happened and uh exhibited this like incredible leadership yet again in the the, you know when confronting the you know the the person that perpetuated this so like Mm -hmm. that story is about justice it's about Mm -hmm. standing up when the odds are against you it's about Mm -hmm. you know like when you're going to get no reward and it's like the worst time ever you still have to do something and so to me, like that is the story I think about the tragedy yeah. at Karbala 
all the time, left and right. Mm. It's a guiding principle in my life. And it really drives home all of the other things I care about, whether it's like women's rights or, uh, you know, fighting for the poor. And what an incredible uh, story and practice, right? So that's what religion can be, at least from where I sit and from what I study. I study, you know, rituals and religion and the arts and the value in not just having these stories, but in telling them in community and communally saying, we have seen leaders that perpetuate injustice to the poor and the marginalized before, and this is how our ancestors responded, and recounting that together and saying that out loud so that it teaches us communally and collectively how we might resist those injustices and work toward equality. I just love love that image and that practice. And it's so um, enriching to hear about people who are doing that in other faith traditions and religions, um, because it's it's just, I think, so vital to our success um, for people who work in the justice movement. I think it's, it's really important for us to be able to ritualize and motivate one another so that we can do it communally and collectively and not just individually. I just... Thank you for sharing that. I couldn't agree more. And it's so, um, there's so many beautiful, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, creative, expressive things that come out of it. Poetry, Mm -hmm. lamentations, everything else. And that's just like, that's the stuff that binds us together collectively. And I just, it's so, uh, you know, it's one of the most, it is one of the most important things in my life every year. Mm. You know, one thing that you pointed out, Noreen, that I would like to share with our listeners, that too often we spend too much time um, isolating ourselves within our own faith tradition, mm-hmm. thinking that we are um, less alike. And in fact, we are very much alike in mm-hmm. our passions for justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also not only that, but when you mentioned this um, memory of this wonderful, this uh, actually tragic, mm-hmm. but uh, very powerful experience in, in your Muslim Shiite tradition, uh, you mentioned that it's uh, it rotates that the that when it, this occurs, the date upon which this occurs is based upon the lunar calendar. I want to add for our Christian listeners that uh, this special holy day for the Muslims that's based on um, the lunar calendar for Christians, Easter mm-hmm. is also mm-hmm. based on the lunar calendar. So um, there are a lot of things that go on within our uh, own traditions Mm -hmm. that are so overlapping that uh, folks just really aren't that aware of. Yeah, there's so much there and so much. I totally agree. And I'll just add that I grew up in West Michigan with um, a lot of people uh, in my community, family, friends, um, you know, loved ones who are basically like family um, who, you know, who are practicing Christians who made such an impact on my life and really influenced my, um, like my understandings about like how to do good in this world. Mm-hmm. Like my parents, especially my mom, like she, she moved to the U S um, you know, uh, you know, right as she got married. And so, you know, there, there, um, there was so much about the people that we were in community with who came from other faith traditions, but Mm. still uh, valued service, Uh, you know, all the same kind of fundamental beliefs about our kind of collective service that we like, we learned from in terms of like what to do here, like what opportunities there are, the landscape, how they spent their free time, Mm. the ways in which they volunteered, 
the social structures to kind of plug into. I got all of that from uh, just the incredible people uh, in Grand Rapids where I'm from. Well, and I just, I love that. I love that idea that there's, it's not just about what we have in common, that we have these traditions in common and we have these, you know, stories that point towards similar virtues of justice um, and equality and love but um, but also that those differences can be enriching, that the things that separate us actually mm-hmm. can yeah. be all the more valuable for that difference and that we don't need to eliminate that difference and try and make everything look the same, um, but that we can learn from one another's stories and value one another's stories. And so I'm just, I thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I, I really hate for us to, to bring this to an end, but I know <laughs> that, Noreen, your your time is so precious, but um, I, I'm, I, we, there's a whole chapter here that we didn't even get to discuss that I was prompted by your sharing your story. Um, and maybe we can do this again because I am fascinated. Your, your parents, I want to know uh, a little bit more about your parents and their experience mm-hmm. of moving into this country. And it sounds like, you know, you're first generation. And so that would you come back? Well, can we do this again? I know you're busy, but uh. I would love to. But Deb, like, I have to meet you in person. We have to talk about NCIS. Um, and watch NCIS. Because I already feel like it's happening. <laughs> I promise. I promise, Doreen. That is so, thank you so much. Um, again, oh I, I hate to bring this to a close, but uh, oh, Noreen, you have you have been a true, truly a gift in this approaching holiday season uh, for me. And, and I know. Can from- I tell you something eerie yes. was I wanted to, I thought of the word gift too, because mm-hmm. the questions you asked me were so rich for me to think about. I'm going to keep thinking about them, but mm-hmm. I, I have so much gratitude to you. This time with you was such a gift for me personally. Oh, oh thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Yes. Um, well, I'd like to also share with our listeners that Faith and Reason has a brand new refreshed website. So we just launched it last week. So please, uh, those of you who are listening, visit our website at uh, www.faithandreason.org, F-A-I-T-H-A-N-D-R-E-A-S-O-N.org. And just peruse our educational materials. We've got some uh, new programs that have been added to the site. And again, our Challenge of Paul series is now shipping. So that features uh, the renowned historical Jesus scholar, John Dominic Crossan. And um, so please take time to to visit. And Noreen, I hate to let you go, Mm. but thank you again for being here. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you and so fun to get to record it. Um, And we do hope to to hear from you again soon. Uh, This is a program that is produced by Faith and Reason, a program of the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation. 